Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Single young lady, some guy wants to take you out. He says, can I take you out? You have to ask yourself, what's your motive? These days when people come to you and say, hey, how you doing? Are you all right? You're like trying to, what's the motive? Why are you talking to me? Because, you know, church folks, can hide behind the church and not let you know what the real deal is. And that's why I say, single people, if you're dating somebody, you need to ask a thousand questions during the dating process. You don't need to be sitting up there talking about, well, I go to church and I talk in tongues, and a big plus is I'm a member of World Change. Oh, praise the Lord, I done found my husband. You might have found the devil. Now, hold up a minute, girl. You need to ask some questions. Y'all need to sit down and go on a whole lot of dates. Uh, what's your name? Is that your real name? Do you have your daddy's name? When can I meet your daddy? Is your dad and mama together? How do you act when you get mad? Do you throw things? Do you cuss around? Do you beat up on people? I need to know, do you have a job? Where do you work at? How much money do you make? How long you been working there? Do you have a bank account? How is your credit? Can I see your credit score? Do you have a house? Are you living in an apartment? Do you pay for your gas in your car? Do you live with your mom and them? I need to understand what you know, what you like to eat. Do you plan on being fine like that all your life? Or you plan on getting big? How many children do you want to have? Will you get upset if we don't have no kids? You plan on having an inheritance? Do you have insurance? Can you pay for your funeral if you were to die today? You need to know who you marry. And don't you dare get married to somebody talking about, I've never seen him angry since I met him. It is not time to marry that person. You need to see how he, how he looked. And you need to ask that woman, how you look without your makeup? Don't put none on tomorrow. I need to see. The hat you got on your head, is that yours or did you purchase it? And if you purchase it, is it paid for or are you in debt? I need to know. When you blink your eyes, are those your eyelashes or, or did you buy those from somewhere? I need to know. You smell good today, but what about tomorrow morning? I need to know. Do you believe in taking showers at night or in the morning? Do you believe in taking three days off and then take shower? How is your relationship with soap and water? I need to know. Those are, everyone clapping is pretty much a father of a, of a daughter, is, is that right? Yeah, there's, there's a thousand questions you need to ask. And you do. We're, in our story of the Song of Solomon, uh, we're studying through that this summer, having a lot of fun. Very applicable, uh, uh, application-oriented book. And now we're at the wedding. That's why I thought I'd play that so that you would understand they have gone through this together, needing to ask the thousand questions because um, we're talking about commitment here. Commitment leads to trust, and trust is ultimately, it's going to be expressed in, in the theme of the book, right, the, the passage that maybe many of us know we just sang about, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. You, you know, I, like, I belong to you, and you belong to me. That's what it means. And the foundation for a deep relationship with anyone, but especially your mate, is commitment, absolutely commitment. It is, it is the spring, because out of commitment comes trust. And that ends up leading to safety. A person has to be safe in this relationship. 
And commitment makes it safe. It's not personality. It's not appearance. Those sorts of things, they come and go. It is a decision of the will. It's not about charm. And that's what we're going to study today is the consequence for that. We're going to look at this marriage, this wedding itself. Now, you need to know two things to better appreciate today's uh, learning time. One is, and this is about the book itself, it is probably this book, Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, the best song ever written, is probably not written in an autobiographical context. In other words, it's not a historical event. It's probably more of a running parable. And the reason a lot of scholars believe that is, is uh, it's kind of the intent of it, being wisdom literature, is not to kind of look at it like, oh, aren't those guys great? I would love to live in, you know, in their lifestyle. But rather, he, he wants us to see that we are in this story. This is the ideal. This is the way things were meant to be in a relationship between a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and we can achieve this. I mean, we can experience as much as we possibly can in this life if, if we're, you know, pulled into that direction. So it'll say, today it'll talk about Solomon's chariot or... or uh, his cart, and Solomon saying things. And I think, again, the scholars are asking us to consider us to be Solomon, the men, and the gals to be the queen because that's the way God sees us. We are to see ourselves in this royal context, not look at those people up there. I wonder, oh, it's too bad for me. So the first thing is to see Song of Solomon in a story of our life, potentially. The second thing, um, especially today, is what we're going to look at uh, the um, the wedding bulletin is different in those days than it is now. Okay? In our day, you have a marriage ceremony, you had the procession, and then you had the vows, and then maybe some photos, right? And then everybody goes to the reception together, and we all enjoy that experience with one another. That's not how it was back in the ancient Near East, and even today in parts of the Middle East. What happens is they come and they say their vows, and then the guests are... Uh, dismissed to the reception, and they're having a fun time with food and drink. And while that's taking place, right, the, the new bride and groom, right, the husband and wife, they go into what's called a bridal chamber or a bridal room, and you, often behind a, a veiled, right, a bed, they consummate the marriage. They seal the contract, and, and it's often witnessed by the, the parents of the bride and the groom so that they make kind of basically a legal treaty. So that's how it's done back then. In this story, there's no parents watching, so the, but you need to know that, that they've had their vows, right? And they're gonna, the second part will be going to the wedding chamber. And then back in the day, they would come out after they consummated the wedding and people, yeah. And it'd be pretty awkward, I would imagine, wouldn't it? Don't you think? Yeah, well, what have you been doing? Nothing much. Uh, just at the punch bowl over here. What have you been doing? So, uh, so you'll need to know that, that, that when we go through this uh, today and tonight, you'll, we'll see that. Now, there are two poems today, like we've been doing. Uh, we'll look at two poems and then two pretty dense applications. You kind of need to brace yourself because we're going to look at some serious material today. The first poem that we're going to look at is the Royal Procession. That's chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. And um, that'll help us understand the luxury, the extravagance, and the excitement of the wedding day. And then the second part is that bridal room chapter 4, verses 1 through, I think, 7 we'll look out, and that'll be the part that we can study in the morning um, with our kids present. And then tonight, we're going to look at, at 6 o'clock, I invite all of you to come. If you're, I don't know, 19 or so or above, single or married, doesn't matter. Uh, we're going to look at the rest of what happens in the bridal chamber, 
and we'll have a little more freedom to speak openly about it. It's going to be a lot of fun. The outline is we're going to look at the rest of the passage itself. We're going to learn why uh, marital intimacy has so much power for soul change, and then we'll learn some things about how to make the most out of marital intimacy, okay? You'll, we'll have, it's 6 o'clock. We're going to start pretty much on time, and we'll go to about 7.15 or so, okay? So that's tonight, 6 o'clock here. Let's look at today's passage. Starts with the procession, and that's going to be, again, chapter, six verses, um, chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. Uh, if, for help, to help you understand in your mind, your imagination, what's ha- taking place here, there'll be a, um, a, a carriage that's described in this, and the carriage will be, be held and carried by uh, uh, Solomon's special forces, about 60 military men. And, and this is what it looked like. This, this is what is going on. This is a Chinese version of that, but it's in the right? It's in the east, and this is the near east, so it's very similar to this. And uh, I wanted you to have that in your mind when we read through this passage together. Look at verse 6. It, again, let's, let's feel, feel how exciting this is. We've been waiting a long time for this, two and a half chapters. Uh, who is this coming up from the wilderness? Like a column of smoke, right? Perfume and myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant. Who is this coming so anticipation, excitement, and the smoke is coming because the guys are kind of walking in the dirt and there's this cloud of, of dust we see at a distance. But, but before we can even appreciate the beauty of the woman that's inside this enclosed carriage, we can smell her coming because she is, she is filled with perfume and myrrh and incense. Now, we'll see that it arrives at the doorstep and kind of walks forward 7 through 11 here. It says, look, 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 look. It's Solomon's carriage. That's what it is, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest in Israel. All of the men are wearing a sword, all experienced in battle. Each one of them has his sword by his side, side, prepared for the terrors of the night. Everything's safe. King Solomon made him, made it, I'm sorry. King Solomon made for himself this carriage. He made it out of wood from Lebanon. Its posts are made of silver. Its base is made of gold. Its seat was upholstered in purple, its interior inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out. Come take a look, O daughters of Zion. Look on to King Solomon wearing that crown, that crown which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding. This, the day his heart rejoiced. It's taken us two and a half chapters to get here, but I hope you feel the mood of these sentences here, that this is a grandiose celebration of of grand extravagance. And as well it should be, right? This, this is a celebration of a, a festive event for something that God, God gave us. He gave us this gift of marriage. And, and it's supposed to be enjoyed. And it's supposed to be extravagant. When you see marriages and wedding ceremonies and people spend a considerable amount of money, sometimes you can go, whoa. But listen, God loves this sort of thing. He loves to celebrate. This attribute of God that God loves to celebrate, it was especially likened to by C.S. Lewis. He, Lewis, again, loves fairy tales and fantasy. And when he saw in the Bible how much God spent with time and money and descriptions on the festive events, the feast in the Old Testament, but also the revelation and the final coming, uh, one of the biographers, a modern biographer, said of Lewis that he would save his most creative and his best writing to describe celebrations whenever he wrote fantasy or science fiction. So you'll see that. You'll see in the Chronicles of Narnia or in the Space Trilogy, Lewis you know, sharpens his pencil and goes at his best when he talks about parties. 
because he knows that God loves these sorts of parties, and, it, and he should, right? So one of the ways we apply this at, at our church when we advise people that are getting married, before they get married in our like pre-wedding itself interview, and then on the wedding day itself, uh, we'll, sit, we'll sit down with them and say, slow down, slow down. There's too much happening today for you to, gra- to grasp it. You need to take pictures, not a video. You'll lose the video in your memory. But if you take pictures and just, just you know, when, you, when the door is open in the back and when you see your husband or wife for the first time, when your father hands you off, when you stare into each other's eyes, for the, when you hold each other's hands and, and exchange rings, take these pictures, drink them in. And then when you go to the reception, slow down. Slow down. Tell your mom and dad everything you've ever wanted to say to them, right? Enjoy people. Enjoy the meal. Drink, right? Enjoy. And then what we'll say is um, don't hurry and get out of that dress. It's the last time you'll ever wear it. So, you know, go to the Capitol and, or maybe down to Town Lake and walk on the river. Do something because what, what's next for that dress is to be dry cleaned and put into a box and then I don't know what happens to them actually after that. But if you, if you get to take the dress off, you should do that slowly. Why? Because it's a celebration. It's this thing that God gives us and it's, it's given to us to be enjoyed. So one of the applications here is you see all uh, the details spent on showing the jubilation of this wedding ceremony, we need to do that as well. The second thing that comes to mind when I see this is just the power of the ceremony itself, the vows, the commitment. We know the words, but listen, let's think about what they mean, right? Um, uh, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Her mother and I do. Okay, kiss her and then let her go. Let her go. And a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall bond to his wife, and they shall become one. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for rich, for poor, sickness and in health, till death do you part. What does all of that mean? What's happening? I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. When you say your vows, the theme, the reason we're bringing friends and family and God as my witness is we're saying, you own me and I own you. It is just us. We're starting over. I'm giving you me and God is going to use you primarily by his spirit to change me to become who I was meant to be. And I'm receiving you as a gift. I own you, and I will love you, the power of Jesus Christ's spirit in my soul, because I will be the primary person to change you to become who God meant you to be. Marriage is about change. It is about becoming. It is about the ambitions that God has for us to become complete or perfect or, or Christ-like, right? And, and, the, and these marriage vows are saying, we're, we're doing this together. We have chosen one another to be the agents of change. Not I'm going to change your mate. I'm, I'm going to change. That's powerful. It's not about being happy. 
It is about becoming holy. That's what marriage is. That's what the vows are. That's the celebration. That that's, we, need a, we need a helpmate suitable for us to get this to work. How does that happen, right? How does a person change? How does anyone change, okay? Outside of marriage, it um, is magnified, turbocharged, right, energized, whatever it might be. But if you have a very good friend to help you, sometimes really Jonathan to David, there's a story of deep friendships in the Bible, and they did this, not at the power of marriage, but as close as you can get. Here's what it looks like. Here's what change looks like. There's two steps to it, really. The first thing you have to do is take every thought captive, every thought, every value, every habit, every personality trait, every tradition, right, your, your temperament, all of those things. You, you look at them, anything of consequence. The Bible says the first thing you do is you look at that and you say, where does that come from? I mean, is that, is that true or right? Is it real? Is that from the Bible? Now, I want you to know I'm, it would be very easy for me to pick two or three things and then run them through this gauntlet, but I have intentionally kept this uh, the details of this vague because I want God to speak to you. And I, and I fear if I mention one thing, you'll say, oh, that's not my problem. I'll just, I'll just sit back and listen now. I want you to hear God's voice speak to your spirit and say, what do you need to change? What, what core or what uh, issue of consequence, right? Value, habit, tradition, temperament, whatever it might be. What, what do you need to grasp a hold of and say, where did that come from? And how did it get in my life, and should it be changed? Because most people, most people, they default to who they are based on some experience in the past, right, or, or maybe the way they were raised, or, or they respond just the opposite. They say, okay, I was raised that way, or I experienced that, so I'm going to do just the opposite. But they're not thinking through, but what, is, what does the Bible say is right or, or wrong or real or a lie? What is true? And so... The Bible says, is, is this the way you're supposed to act in these kind of circumstances and situations? Is this uh, a tradition that you should hold as a new family? Are these lifestyle or habits or values that you need to have to become more like Jesus? Are these the things that you need to abandon and change to adopt to a new value? So, the, so step one is you have to take these major issues captive what the Bible says. Now, the second thing is, then you take the new value uh, or habit or whatever it might be, right? And then you make it yours together. And you, you say, okay, this is the way we're going to do things in our family. New family just got started. That's right. I want to introduce to you for the first time, Mr. and Mrs. What? Smith, right? And, and then you're off and running. And the point is, is you're, it's just the two of you. I'm my beloved. My beloved is mine. This is the way we're going to treat each other. These are the values we're going to have. Doesn't matter if you're raised Christian or not. I mean, I haven't seen any pattern here, okay? I don't, Christian or non-Christian, because everybody has a lot of crazy in them. And so everyone has to stop and say, where did this come from? And then we have to reevaluate and say, these are the traditions that we're going to have. And so while our two points look pretty easy, evaluate, you know, what, whether it's biblical or not, whether it's right or real or true, and then, and then choose this new value that is right and real and true and live happily ever after. It's not that easy because these things are deep-seated within our souls. These patterns, these temperaments, you know, these, these ways of doing things, our, our, our ways of responding to fight or flight. 
So I want to give you five things that you can expect to experience when you're taking on a new value, a new, uh, a new action style. And then there's going to be one fun one at the end, okay? There's five things that you, on how to do this and, and what to expect. The first one is, is that you have to tell the old value to shut up. Okay? You have to tell the old value to shut up because you can't, you, it's, an, it's deep inside of your tradition, your family. It's deep inside of like who you are. And so it comes back. And one of the best things you need to know about is this phrase, false guilt. It feels like real guilt, but it's not. You shouldn't feel guilty for doing the right thing or abandoning the wrong thing. And, and so you need to be able to shut up in, in my family is a cuss word. And so I used it on there on purpose because you need to say to the old value, shut up. And sometimes you need to say a version of that to your family but, or some people that want you back in that value system. But you don't say those words. You, you be nice. You play nice. But you say, hey, maybe we should, you, we should get some distance or we'll miss you this next time around. But listen, friends, I've been in my own backyard facing San Antonio and said, leave me alone, mom. You know, I, I don't need that anymore, you know. Mother, you know, Catholic guilt from your mother. I mean, that's just false guilt. It comes in trucks. So there's false guilt. And so when you take on these new values, you're going to have some stuff. So say shut up to that. Second thing is you need to lean into the discomfort of a new practice. Okay? It's a new activity. You're going to be super clumsy at this. You're not going to be good at it. You're, you're going to, the way you treat your husband or wife, you've never done it the right way before. You have years of practice in doing it wrong. So it's, right? so just, it's okay. Lean into the awkwardness of that. The third thing is, is go slow. Go slow. You'll be reckless. It's, you're going to be married for maybe 50 years. Let's do it one day at a time. Let's be, oh, let's so be so patient with, you, with each other. Let's be forgiving. Wow, why don't you try that same thing that we agreed on, but why don't you try it a different way but better? Let's, let's try that, right? Make progress. You will fail, okay? Falling is not failing. Failing is not getting up, okay? Falling is not failing. Making, just messing this, this new habit, new value, new temperament, new way of, that's not, when you wreck that, that's not failing. Failing is when you say, oh, that's it. We tried it twice. Failing is not getting back up. Make progress. Finally, you get to a point where you do this long enough, you know, over the years, you get to enjoy and you could say, look at us, you know, look, we're doing something right, you know. And you get to, like we sang, you know, drop these chains, drop these chains. So there's, there's five things that you'll experience when you take on a new value, especially if you're abandoning an old value. But you, listen to this, the last one's fun. Go back and get someone else. Go back and get someone else and take them through one and two. Because here's the thing, you're not alone in your experience, whatever your experience might be. And friends, sometimes, sometimes you know, we can, we can get connected when a couple kind of says, wow, you did that too? Well, we're about eight years ahead of you. Why don't we come back around and share stories together so that we can encourage you to do that? You see? Look, here's the real question, though, with change. It's always the question with change. It's the best question I think that's ever been asked in history. Do you want to get well? Jesus asked that to a man that had been laying, you know, in, in, a, in a state of injury for his, most of his whole life. And he says, do you want to get well? Have you grown weary 
of the consequences of living these, these things that aren't true, these lies. Most people allow themselves to be defined by things that are not true. Or they allow themselves to be defined by things, the values, the stories, the circumstances, the experiences, that they give power to. Listen to me. People define themselves by the thing, the experience, the value, that they give power to that. Okay. You give it power. It doesn't have power on its own. You give it power, and you say, it will define me. I am not saying this is easy. I'm saying this could probably be, possibly, no, probably be the hardest thing you'll ever do is change, especially something that's deep-rooted, deep-seated. What I'm saying here is that you owe it. When you say your vows, you owe it. You owe it to God, and you owe it to your mate, and you owe it to yourself because that's what marriage is. It is not about status quo. It's not about how you can remain the same and be stubborn and stuck. It is, it is saying, I am giving myself to you so that God will primarily love me through you to change me, to change me, to be who I was meant to be. I want to be like Eve. I want to be like Adam. You're going to be the person to bring me there. And so you have to, you have to, do you want to get well? You, will, you have to decide, I will not be defined by my past. Whatever my past has been. You say, you know, something happened to me when I was a child. Okay. It was 32 years ago. You know, and now you're married and you say, let's combat this together. You know, now the odds are in our favor. It's two against one. You know, let's go get them. Some people say, I will be defined by the, my experiences growing up, the way I was raised, for example. And listen, just because you're raised some way doesn't mean it's the right way. I mean, there's three out of four answers to a value or a habit or the way you deal with people because it was the way you were raised. The first one is maybe it's the right way after all. Well, if it's the right way, then just adopt it as your new value, and it's your value. It's not something that you inherited. It's your value. Uh, the way you were raised could be... I don't know, inherently neutral. Who cares? You can abandon it or not. I know your relatives will have a lot of attachment to it, but you're not, you're, you're not a relative. You're a new family. The way you were raised, the way you experienced, all that kind of sort of thing, that can be, it could be wrong. Has it occurred to you that you could, it could have been wrong? Again, church, Christian or non-Christian, church or non-church. And finally, the last option of I, I was raised this way, it, you could have been raised by an evil person and here's what happens when people are raised by people that are in a family, like in a, in, a, like in a culture of wrong or evil. Here's what they try to do, okay? They try to rearrange all the rest of reality, okay, so that they won't have to acknowledge that their parents, one of their parents or both of their parents were evil. And, and, and let me tell you something. Life doesn't work that way. And when you're unmarried, you can, you can kind of run from hole to hole and get away with stuff for so long. But when you get married, it just keeps showing up. And the power of marriage is a person has the ability and the permission to come alongside of you and say, listen, God gave you to me to be the primary means of change. And I want to tell you something, and I want you to consider it. Just look, get back to me in a day. But what if, what if you were to think about your mom as not like a person that meant well but did wrong, but maybe as a person that is an evil witch 
that's a battle axe. Now, wait, 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 don't get mad. If, let me just, I want you to think about if your mom was a battle axe, and you can use other words, um, then what would the rest of life look like? It would, all the blues would turn blue and, and the reds would turn red, wouldn't they? Yeah. Let's see, I'll get back to you in a day or so. And, and so sometimes an outside person has to come in and bring sobriety to something and make, make define things as real. And then and when a person buys into this, they can start changing and they can get disconnected, right, from these, because memories are attached to emotions. And you're going to be the person that disconnects them. So two years, three years later, and you, the person's in the, in the kitchen saying, God, I can't believe my mom did this, 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 this. So say, could I remind you that your mom's a battle axe and that's what battle axes do? You are right. She is acting like She's that way, and now I'm not surprised anymore because I've redefined real life by what is right and real and true. I'm sorry I'm being vague. Some of you are understanding this at great depths, and some of you might not be. But I, here's what I want you to understand. It takes someone that you have committed to, right, that you give trust to, that you feel safe with to be able to say those kinds of words, right? Because some people, they, they just choose to be they choose to be a victim of, of, I don't know, their past or how they grew up, or they'll say, that's the way I am. Is that the way you're supposed to be? And your mate is, is a gift from God to say, I'm going to be here to help change you. You want to get well? Do you want to get well? Do not read another novel or watch another movie about some act of courage unless you want to be courageous. Do not live vicariously through a fantasy world become a story. I mean, what else, what else do you have to do for the rest of your life than to face the demons that are evil and are still kicking you around life and to team up with your mate and say, let's take this dragon on together? What else, what else do you trust God for? What else has the potential of a grand story of the power of spirit in your life than to do this, to unravel and to become who God meant you to be. Who would you be if you weren't trusting God for safety and you were trusting God for conquests? Here's how you change. You do those two things, but here's how you do it in a marriage. You go to your partner and you say this. You say, I am so sorry. Will you please forgive me? I've realized now that these old values, these habits, right, these ways of interacting with my fellow man and you, my mate, I bring this, and I've allowed it to define me, and, it's, and, it's, and it's, it, it's retarded our depth, and I'm so sorry for that. And, I, and I, want, I want you to forgive me, and there's a second part to this. I want to lock arms with you, and I want to knock the crap out of this stuff with you. I will do whatever it takes, and I'll like celebrate recovery or re-engage or pay for counseling. I will do, I will just go to lunch with some people that have been here before. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Let's beat this thing up. We've got 48 years left. Let's go. You see, that's what marriage is. That's the power of it. That's our first application. The second one, we, we change themes a lot. In the, we're in the bridal room now. 
Um, the groom is looking at his bride. She has this veil on, and the veil, they still do this today. Her hair is kind of in a, in a, in a bun or a hat, and she has this veil on, and it covers her face, but not too much. It, you know, it's, it really, it's a symbol of chastity and holiness, but it also, it, it entices the view, right? It doesn't hide the view, and he, you can tell he can see her eyes, and her eyes are smiling, and her mouth is open. She's so excited. And you're going to see that the man talks more in chapter 4 than he has in one, two, or three combined. He's having a good time. Everybody else is at the reception, and it's just the two of them, and he speaks these things. He's going to start uh, describing her from the eyes downward. He says, oh, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful you are. Your eyes behind the veil are like doves. The hair on you is like a flock of goats descending down the hills of Gilead. I think he's gone and taken the hairpins out or that cap off, and her hair is now flowing down to her shoulders. She's smiling. She's really enjoying this. You can see this. He starts talking about her teeth. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn. Okay. <laughs> and it's, it's like your teeth are coming up from a washing. And I, I think he's, what, what he's saying there is they're white. He's just being creative about it. He says, look, each one has a twin. They're, they're straight. Well, good for you. And the last one, and, and none of them are alone. You have all your teeth. <laughs> Do you see how complimentary he is? He is looking for things. Look at you. Your teeth are white. That's good. And they're kind of straight for this time in history. But you have them all. Not even a chipped one. Look at me, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. And he looks at her lips and he says, your lips are like scarlet ribbon, right? They're done up with makeup and your mouth is lovely. Your temple behind the veils, I can see that. They're like halves of pomegranates. Uh-oh, whenever you see pomegranates, they're talking about love and lust and fertility and all kinds of fun stuff. Her neck, your neck is like the flower of, uh, like the Tower of David built with coarse Courses of stone, uh, on it hang thousands of shields, all of them, shields like warriors. She has a neck of a lumberjack. You know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't write poetry. I don't know what's happening here. We're getting to something that I understand. First five, your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies, soft and beautiful. The idea of the, the gazelles is a joyful lust for life. And he's looking at everything so far, and he says, I hope you took a nap. Look at verse 6. Until the day breaks, okay, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. Those two mountains I was just referring to, I'm, spending, I'm camping there tonight. Verse 7, he says it all. He says, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. That You are perfect. Perfect. Look, the theme of the book, the theme of the book is passion and delight within marriage is to be enjoyed. It's a gift from God. Okay? The theme of the book is passion is to be enjoyed as a gift from God in marriage. Right? And, and the application for the book is, and we've seen this, is to love and to be loved. It's to love and to be loved. It is to praise and to be praised. And we, we've seen this so far in these two chapters. We, kept, we stopped and we talked about the power of praise. There's a great study I read this week about the power of praise, but you have to hear the praise. You have to let the praise hit you. The power of praise. Um, uh, John Gottman, he uh, is at the University of Washington. He's been researching. He's a psychologist. 
or a psychiatrist and, and a marriage counselor, and he studies, does a lot of research, extensive research in marriage and parenting. He's been doing this for 30 years, and he says, I, he said in his books, I can pretty much tell you who's going to survive in a great marriage and who won't. Three factors, simple. Here's the point. In all of his 30 years of research in modern day, he's still alive? Okay. We could have seen this in Song of Solomon 3,000 years ago. Here's, here's his conclusions. Here's how, to, here's how to experience greatness in, mar- in marriage and intimacy. First, great lovers see eye to eye. Okay, that's, that's, those are our words. Here's his paragraph. The importance of mutuality is essential in a good relationship. Both partners must feel they have influence over the other and that the other seriously considers their opinions and responses. It's the key to a lasting relationship. You have to have respect, acceptance, and friendship. Boom. He also talks about the power of bad words. He says this. He has identified what he calls the four horsemen of behaviors that if go unchecked, that quickly ruin a relationship. Criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Those four horsemen show up. They will destroy and burn your family to the ground, he says. But, but, but. He says the power of, of praise. It's like he read this book, The Power of Praise. He says, behaviors between parties that outweigh the positive comments, I'm sorry, the positive comments and behaviors, those two things, of parties that outweigh the negative 20 to 1 will last and be enjoyed. He concludes this, that virtually it is certain for a relationship to last long and be enjoyed if the ratios are 20 to 1. You have to learn how to give praise. You have to learn how to receive praise. Why is it 20 to 1? He says if it's 50-50, that relationship is going to tank. Why is it 20 to 1? Think about it. Because we can give praise, but we're not very good at receiving praise, are we? You're going to have to say something to me 20 times for it to make up for one time you said something that was disparaging or discouraging. This book is about praising and receiving praise. And I know it's easy for us to default to, you know, looking at Solomon and his bride and thinking, you know, it's Ken and Barbie's story and they had a lot going for them. If you remember, this is a story about Cinderella. When we meet this bride, she said, turn away, look another way. I am sunburned like all the other people working in the fields. He turned her into a princess because she heard it, believed it, and let it cover her belief system. Praise and the reception of praise. You know, I, some of you know uh, when Melinda and I were just starting out, she was pretty self-confident, uh, self-conscious about her appearance and, and what she she thought she should have looked like, probably like most women, right, compared to magazine covers, sorts of things. And I just snapped one day and couldn't take it anymore and grabbed her and said, you are the most beautiful girl in the world. And she said, yeah, okay, right. And I said, no, 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 you are the most beautiful girl in the world. And then I held her like we were dancing, and that always scares her. And so she really listened. (laughs) And I said, I'm just going to sway back and forth. I'm going to say, you're the most beautiful girl in the world, just whispering this in her ear. And then it wasn't taking, I said, oh, okay, this will be great. You have to say it back to me now. Say it back. Say, say, I'm the most beautiful girl in the world. And over the years, she started to believe it. And now to this day, she signs, her name is MBG, most beautiful girl. You know, the other day she was shaking her tail feathers at me or doing something, and I said, you're just showing off. She said, I am showing off. 
Now, I tell you that story because uh, it took a dark turn later on in our relationship because she saw some things in me that I wasn't believing. And I didn't like that so much because she took me into her arms and said, you're my dream come true. I say, oh, okay, that's cool, okay. Um, no, she said, no, 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 you're my dream come true. I said, yeah, that's, that's neat. She said, I made a wish and you came true. Okay, okay, say it back to me. I said, well, you know what, that's a stupid thing to do to someone. Um, I mean, who would do that? Who would do that to their marriage partner, right? Say it back. I made it, you made a wish and I came true. Say it out loud. I made a wish and came true. Say it, I can't hear you, you know. I made a wish and you came true. How many wishes did you have? She's changing my life, friends. But I'm here to tell you it was much easier to praise than to receive praise. The application this week is not the praise, it is to learn how to receive praise, accept it. It is from a gift from God that has been sent by him to be the primary means of change in your life. Receive that, believe that, and let that belief saturate your soul, and that will change you. Two big assignments this week. They're good ones, right? Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Will you take the gift that God gave you in matrimony, lock hands, and go slay some dragons? That's one. Application two, would you learn how to receive praise so your mate doesn't have to hit the 20 to 1 ratio, maybe break it down to 10 to 1? Could you do that? All right. Let's pray to that end. Don't miss tonight. We have some really fun homework for tonight. 6 o'clock. Don't be late. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for... uh, for this book, it teaches us the power of praise but, and the things we need to learn. Lord, I, um, it was my hope all week that you would speak to each person here, their soul, uh, about what they need to change and what's, uh, the, what they're so afraid of letting go of, the things that haunt them, the things they're giving power to, and they think it's more powerful than your spirit and the encouraging word of a good friend or a, a lover. So, Lord, I'd ask that you would, you would speak to our souls and and just call us out. Call us, call us to courage. Nag us. Don't let this go until, until we let your spirit in there to shake things up. Lord, and then also, Lord, would you teach us how to receive, receive praise from our friends and from the one that you gave us? Let our life be a gift back to you. What we did with it was us, and what you choose to do uh, with your spirit in us, that's our gift back if we surrender that. Let us do that. Let us be people that surrender your spirit. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.